This summer we've been looking at the books in the New Testament, one book each Sunday, with the letters of Paul to the various churches throughout the Mediterranean basin. This morning, the second letter to the church in Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica. Uh, I realized when I started this approach to studying God's Word that I would be preaching from books of the Bible I've never preached from before, and this one qualifies. I don't know if you've ever heard a message from the book of Second Thessalonians, but if you did, you didn't hear it from me because I've never preached one before. Let me say there's two problems in the church in Thessalonica. They're both addressed. There's two purposes for the return of Christ. They're both addressed. And listen to me carefully. There are two latter-day anointings mentioned in the book of Second Thessalonians. And I want both of them. And I want you to have both of them. You can remember two anointings from two Thessalonians. And that's what we want to get today. More than studying this book, and we're going to study the book, but more than studying the book, we need God's anointing. We need latter-day anointing. We need anointing from God to walk through these challenging days in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Sometimes when you write a letter, one letter doesn't quite cut it. You gotta follow it up. Especially these days with emails. Like, how much do you put in there? You put in a little bit and then you get a letter back. Huh? What is this? Oh yeah, so then you fill in the blanks. You send another one. Well, that's what Second Thessalonians is. He wrote one letter and it, it, it raised more questions than it gave it. Huh? So he writes another letter to clarify what left them somewhat confused. In addition to that, there were those who were false teachers that invaded the church because Paul started the church, but he was only there for four weeks. He leaves, and now the church has various teachers giving input on various subjects. In fact, somebody fabricated a letter. They wrote a letter about the second coming of Christ, which was the subject of his first letter, and they signed sincerely, Paul. But Paul didn't write it. So that's the kind of situation that Paul now is addressing in as he writes this second letter. Chapter 2, verse 1, really deals with these areas of confusion concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. We ask you, brothers, not to become so easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposedly to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Chapter 2, verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until. And he describes what needs to happen before the, what's referred to here as the coming of the Lord. Now, in each of the books that we look at, we said from the beginning that we want to get our arms around every book. So let's get our arms around 2 Thessalonians. There are three chapters. In fact, each of the letters we've been looking at are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. 
Um, Philippians had like 105 verses. Colossians, 95. 1 Thessalonians had 89. And now we come to 2 Thessalonians, it's only 47. They're getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Three small chapters. Chapter 1 covers the two things that will happen when Jesus returns. The two big things. It's what happens when Christ returns is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Chapter 2 is what needs to happen before Jesus returns. It's the preliminaries to His return. And chapter 3 is the, so how do we live in light of the fact that He is going to return and in light of the fact that certain things need to happen before His return? How should we live? And it answers that question. That's the outline of the whole book. But now let's look. Chapter 1. Chapter 1 deals with the two problems in the church. There were two extremes in the church regarding the second coming of Christ. There were those on the one extreme who had really a cynical disconnect. A cynical disregard for the second coming, saying, ah, we're hearing this, we're hearing this, we can't be sure of anything, so let's just not even think about it. Let's not worry about it. Let's not even consider the second coming of Christ. So there's this cynical disconnect. On the other hand, the other extreme, are those who are obsessively connecting to the second coming in such a way that that's all they want to think about, that's all they want to read about, that's all they want to talk about, and they want to sit around and read and talk and think about the Second Coming and not do anything else. Those are the two extremes. And in a greater or lesser extent, I'd say today, there tends to be two extremes of people who have regard for the second coming of Christ. There are those who really don't want to think about it. They say, ah, who knows? I don't even want to th- go there. And then there are those that they can't get enough of it. They're always reading and thinking, and that's their, their focus of study and so forth. Well, Second Thessalonians identifies both of these as extremes and gives the right approach that we should not obsess But we shouldn't disconnect either. And he says in chapter 1 that when Christ returns, there's two things that are going to happen. For the believers, it is the moment we've all been waiting for. It's the arrival of Christ. It's when His presence will be manifested in all its fullness. And we will be gathered with Him from that point on forever with the Lord. But there's another thing that's going to happen when He returns. The return of Christ will mean for us peace, justice, mercy, kindness, 
Jesus will, so to speak, get even with all of our enemies? For us, it's the moment we've all been waiting for. But for the unbelievers, for those who did not put their hope in Christ, it is going to be a time of judgment, of punishment, where the vengeance of God will be revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. It will be a horrifying time of judgment when Jesus is not going to be like a little baby in Bethlehem. He's not going to be meek riding a donkey into Jerusalem. He's not going to allow any Roman soldiers to handcuff Him and carry Him off in front of a howling mob, and He will not be crucified. He will come with a rod of iron, and there will be no more rivalries against His dominion. He will put His foot down and level the playing field and exercise judgment against all wickedness. Now, let's just look at this, because it's woven together in the first chapter. Follow along with me, verse 6 of chapter 1. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire and with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. On that day, He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. That's the day of the Lord. Notice interwoven here is this picture of Justice, safety for those who have believed and punishment and justice against those who have done wickedness. Last week we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 the phrase thief in the night. I want to unpack this a little bit further because I don't want any of our congregation to think that we are waiting for Jesus to come as a thief in the night. A thief in the night is unwanted and unexpected. When Jesus returns for us, He is going to be wanted. He may not be expected at that very moment, but He is not going to be a thief in the night because He is wanted. Are you with me? For the unbelievers, Jesus will come as a thief in the night because he is unexpected to them and unwanted. For them, he's a thief in the night. He is not a thief in the night for us. In fact, his return is our blessed hope. It's the longing of every heart that beats for Jesus. You mean, we're going to get to see him, I mean, like face to face? And we're going to be caught up with him forever? There's never going to be another goodbye. 
He's going to blot away all of our tears and heal all of our wounds and mend all of our broken relationships. He's going to do all that and it's never going to end. Yes. It is our blessed hope when He appears and we're all going to be with Him forever. Now, we come to chapter 2. Chapter 2 mentions this word until. Verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until. Now, some slice and dice this differently. Some referred to the rapture when the, the saints will be taken and this, this will ha- take place later. I'm not separating the two. I'm seeing it as one event. It may end up as two. God is going to deal with that when it happens. But it's still being referred to here as the coming of the Lord. Now follow this. He's not, that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose. See, he's going to be known for what he's against. He will oppose. And exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. There are facts that we learn about the second coming of Christ and what precedes the second coming of Christ that you will find nowhere else in the Bible. That's why we need a sermon on 2 Thessalonians. We need to understand what is being taught here. So we've got two things that are going to happen before the day of the Lord. There's going to be the rebellion and there's going to be this man of lawlessness who will exalt himself and will set himself up in God's temple. Verse 5, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to talk about these things, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until it is taken out of the way. Now, what this is saying is there is a spirit of lawlessness or the spirit of the Antichrist already at work in our world, but there is a restraining of the Holy Spirit going on to hold the reins on this rebellious one right now. But then the restraining will be released and the lawless one will wreak havoc. Now, just continue to read with me verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. Isn't that cool? It's not even going to take his pinky. He might not even have to say anything. It's just his breath. Just a little. He doesn't even have to spit. Just like blowing out a candle. The breath of his mouth is going to take care of him. And destroy the... By the splendor of His coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. You don't find this elsewhere. This is is an amazing inclusion. The lawless one will work miracles. He will heal. 
Who knows what other miracles? Just like when Moses was given authority by God to work miracles and to to throw down his scepter and it becomes a snake and to grab the snake by the tail and it became a rod so the court magicians of Pharaoh could do the same thing. And then the, the court magicians ended up being outdone by God's miracles. In fact, they couldn't even go around because of the boils that covered the, the court magicians. In the same way, this miracle, counterfeit miracle working is going to be embodied in this lawless one. But continue reading. Verse 10, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. Now, the lie, the lie, if you don't mind marking in your Bible, I would circle the word the. Sometimes the is a big word, as in this case. It's not believe a lie. If it was a generic lie, it could be anything. It's the lie because it is not referring to just any old lie. It's the lie. It's the big one. This is really kind of easy if you'll follow with me. The lie is the big lie. In fact, it's the last lie and it was the first lie. The first lie, it's Genesis 3, verse 5. Satan said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. What is the lie? The lie is, you can be like God. That's the lie. It's the biggest lie of humanity. You can be like God. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. This lawless one will be given almost absolute power and he will be the most absolutely corrupt. The nations of the world will bow and give him preference. They will throw off any allegiance to any other moral presence, moral being. They will follow his morality because he is God. And they will throw off any obligation to the one true God and will follow Him in what's called lawlessness. Because it is blatant rebellion against the lawgiver. And today, humanity is being judged according to whether they set themselves up as God or they follow the one true God. And when Christ returns, that's the dividing line. Those that follow the one true God and those who have set themselves up as God and believed the lie. Now, right in the margin of your notes, Matthew 24, Jesus said many of these same things using different words. Just listen to me. Jesus said in Matthew 24, watch out that no one deceives you. Paul's saying the same thing. Jesus said, verse 12, that in the last days, wickedness will be multiplied and most men's love will grow cold. Paul is saying very similar things. Again, Matthew 24, Jesus said, you will see the abomination that causes desolation standing in the temple. Most people say that what Jesus was talking about and what Paul's talking about here, that 
this lawless one will set himself up in the temple means that the Jewish temple must be rebuilt prior to this being fulfilled. Because it says here the lawless one will set himself up in the temple. The Hasidic Jews have already designed the the modern day rebuild on the temple. They have not only designed it, I have a picture on my phone, I'll be glad to show any of you later, of the menorah, solid gold menorah that stands about eight feet tall that is built to go in the new temple. It's standing within eyeshot of the western wall right now in the old city of Jerusalem. I've got a picture of it with a Mount of Olives in the background and this giant uh, solid gold menorah that was built to go in the temple that's being referred to here. It's absolutely amazing the day in which you and I are living when these words could well be fulfilled within our lifetime or the lifetime of our children. These things are happening. And it says... The day of the Lord is not going to come until these things are fulfilled. Until. You can imagine what a sober feeling I have as your pastor. It's my responsibility to keep watch over my flock by night. And this is nighttime. And I take that responsibility very seriously. To warn you. To call you, as Jesus called His disciples, as Paul called the church in Thessalonica, do not let anyone deceive you. Don't succumb to a cynical disconnect from the second coming saying, ah, who knows, I don't have to think about that. And don't succumb to an obsessive connect to the second coming and think all you need to do is sit around and wait for Him to return. Listen to me carefully. If you're ready, let's go into chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the therefore, what do we do in light of these doctrinal truths? See, one of the beauties of the letters of Paul, every letter is structured the same way, and that is it begins with doctrine and it ends with application. And this letter, now that we understand the doctrinal truth of His return and what's going to happen before, it's a very sobering picture. Now that we have that sobering picture, how should we respond and what do we do about it in our daily lives? We said there were two problems. There were the two extremes. The cynical disconnect or the obsessive connect. We said that when Christ returns, there's two things He's going to do. He is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. And the wheat He gathers with Himself forever. The chaff He's going to consume forever. But when we started this morning, I said that there are two applications. There's two, and I use the term latter-day anointings that we all need. And these are the two pieces that Paul ends his letters to the church in Thessalonica with. He wrote the first letter 
We saw that last week. Now the second letter, the last chapter. The first five verses basically say pray. 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 God wants to give you a prayer anointing. I guess that means it's time to pray. It's time to pray. You hear me talk a lot about prayer. I can't put prayer in you. I can't put prayer in my children. Only God can do that. Only God can put prayer in you. But in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, the first, therefore, to His return is pray. The first, therefore, to the fact that we're going to be gathered with Him forever is pray. And the, and the fact that when He returns, the fat lady sings and it's all over and there's no more chances for repentance once He returns. Therefore, pray. And the fact that before He returns, there's going to be a delusion that comes upon the world and most who go to church today are not going to be going to church then because they're going to have fallen away and they're going to be deceived. Therefore, pray! Does that make sense? Jesus said, watch and pray. As the day draws near, there is more of an urgency than ever that we learn to pray. The first anointing we need is to pray, to, to pray to worship, to pray to call out to the Lord, to pray for the nations. And the second anointing is the second thing from verse 6 on to through verse 18 of chapter 3. It's all work. 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 Jesus said, work while it is yet day, for night comes when no man shall work. It's here the, the Scripture in, in the chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians are the words, If a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. Our founding fathers took that, and it almost became the motto of our nation. And it's out of that that, that the work ethic came into our culture. The strong work ethic. And it does refer to the fact that we should work manually. That we should earn a living. As much as we can to earn our own living. That's part of what it's saying. But more than that, it's serve the Lord. Take advantage of every opportunity to give an account for the hope that lies within us. Do not be weary in well-doing, for you know that you will reap if you faint not, and that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Work. The founder of our denomination was a Presbyterian pastor. He loved the Word, but then he got filled with the Holy Spirit. And he became Word and Spirit. And he, he couldn't stay in the church that his roots were in. And so he started the Christian Missionary Alliance. He worked a lot, and he prayed a lot. In fact, in his office, he had a cot where he would often sleep for a couple hours and then get up and serve the Lord some more. A little dysfunctional, but it worked for him. 
Well, on one side of his cot, he had one phrase, and on the other, he had another phrase. And this guy had latter-day anointing. Albert Benjamin Simpson was his name. And he had scribbled on a note on one side of his head in the cot where he would sleep, pray without ceasing. And on the other wall next to his head in his cot, in his study, it was, do it now. That's what I want. I want latter-day anointing. I want to be anointed to pray. Pray without ceasing. And I want to be anointed to work. Do it now. Do it now. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to just figure out the last days. I believe in studying it. And thinking as clearly as we can over the return of Christ. But more than studying it and more than figuring it out, we need anointing. We need Holy Spirit anointing so that we can pray the way we ought and we can serve Him the way we ought. Amen.